Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's about the Bills and the beer. Here's your host, John Murphy. Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff, Week 4, Podcast 4. My name is John Murphy, the play-by-play voice of the Buffalo Bills. We're here every week to talk about beer and to talk about the Bills. Anything else? I mean, what else is there, right? It's a good combination. It has been so far. We're brought to you by Sullivan's Brewing Company, makers in Ireland of Sullivan's Maltings Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Irish Gold Ale, and Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. Made in Kilkenny, Ireland, imported to the United States, available in more and more places, bars and stores throughout upstate New York, in New Jersey, New York City, Cleveland, Columbus, Ohio, Savannah, and Atlanta, Georgia, and of course, uh, our home here in the United States is in Buffalo, which brings us to football, the amazing, undefeated Buffalo Bills. We're going to talk about the Bills today with uh, one of their closest observers, one of the most intelligent and insightful folks reporting on the Bills these days, Mark Gaughan of the Buffalo News. We'll talk with Mark about last Sunday's remarkable comeback win over the Rams. We'll talk about the Bills in general after their 3-0 and start, their strengths and their weaknesses how far they might go. We'll talk about the NFL and the COVID era. What's it like covering the NFL or the Bills in the COVID era? What challenges does that present? And we'll talk about the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Mark was an elector for a dozen years to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. Also on the podcast, great conversation with the man behind Making Sullivan's Ale, brewmaster Ian, uh, Ian Hamilton. Wonderful man, trained chemist, interested in geology, He's made several trips to the Buffalo area and upstate New York to spread the Sullivan's gospel. You know, my wife said, even if you're not interested in brewing, after she heard the interview, she said, if you're not even interested in beer, you'd love this interview just to hear Ian Hamilton's Irish accent. (laughs) We'll see if that's the case. Got a couple of opening thoughts on the remarkable Buffalo Bills. It was an amazing game, the win over the Rams, a remarkable win. It has to be said, first off, the Rams are really good. They are a solid playoff team, maybe Super Bowl contenders. They had trouble early putting points up. You know, they turned it over. They missed a field goal. They got warmed up, though, in the second half, and they were in their second straight visit to the East Coast, which takes a toll on a team. A 10 a.m. road game for them takes a toll on a team. Second half, they were virtually unstoppable. You know, the Bills never forced a punt in the game. They got the Rams turnover on downs. They, of course, had a turnover. The Rams, though, have a great offensive scheme. They have a more-than-capable quarterback, Jared Goff. They have enough playmakers, not great players, but Cooper Cup and Robert Woods, uh, the running backs, they're all pretty good, better than better than average. They got enough to get it done, and they had it going on in the second half when they eventually erased a 25-point deficit and took the lead. But the Bills, a gritty team, a resilient team. This is their second consecutive fourth-quarter comeback. I think uh, they've shown that they know how to play now. They know how to come back when they fall behind, for sure. I think the depth of the team has been on display, and that's a a testament, really, to the job that Brandon Bean and his personnel department have done. You know, John Brown gets hurt. Cole Beasley starts making plays, uh, nominally the third wide receiver on the roster. Rookie Gabriel Davis, fourth-round draft pick, making big plays, helping out. They were without uh, running back Zach Moss, the rookie. Devin Singletary, we knew he was good. I thought he was maybe played his best game in a Bills uniform Sunday against the Rams. He more than picked up the slack with Zach Moss out. They are deep, which is what you need in the NFL. Josh Allen, fantastic, and obviously everybody's raving about Josh. His stats are great. 71% completion rate, 10 touchdowns, only one interception. As good as his stats are, though, I really believe this, his stats don't tell the whole story about how well he's playing. They don't. 
Back-to-back fourth-quarter comebacks that he leads. That's amazing. He's demonstrating leadership, toughness, competitiveness. Josh Allen, as good as his stats are, and they're great, I submit that he's playing better than his stats. I really do. I think he is. You know, the network talking heads come in here to do the game, and they had a new crew from Fox this past weekend. They're starting to come around to the fact that Josh Allen is for real. Well, I think if you're watching this team for a while, you know he's been real since he got here, really. He's improved every year on a slow and steady pace. It's not like a brand-new Josh Allen. He is playing well. He's made improvements in his game, but he's made improvements all along in his game. We'll talk with Mark Gaunt about that in a few minutes. Plus, i got to say this. Josh gets great coaching, and the Bills do a great job, Sean McDermott and his staff, of player development. And they have developed Josh pretty uh, consistently throughout his uh, three-year career. Bills' defense is very interesting now. The defense ranked 20th in the NFL. They were top five defense for a couple of years here. And now they're 20th after three games this year. Gave up 478 yards to the Rams. They got gashed in the ground game. And we're not used to seeing that, are we, in recent years? Well, who's out from last year? Lorenzo Alexander retired. Okay. Star Latulale opting out. Did they make that much of a difference? Not sure. Not quite what to think of the way the Buffalo defense has played through three weeks, and especially against the Rams. That bears watching. And we'll talk with Mark Gaunt of the Buffalo News about that as the podcast moves along. I got to make one more observation. And I came across this preparing for the Bills-Rams game. And I think many NFL fans are onto this, but maybe not everyone. And you got to acknowledge this, I think. The NFL has already, I believe, the NFL has already entered a new era of quarterbacks. New young quarterbacks who are defining the game. So Sunday night, you turn on the TV, you see Drew Drew Brees of the Saints, Aaron Rodgers of Green Bay. They're both great, both going to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But Brees, uh, Rodgers... Tom Brady, now with Tampa Bay, Phillip Rivers, now with the Colts, Ben Roethlisberger, even Matt Ryan, and maybe even Cam Newton. I think their history, their time as dominant quarterbacks in the league is over. It's over. And the new NFL is led by young quarterbacks doing amazing things. And we're seeing it up close and personal right here in Buffalo, aren't we? Josh Allen in his third year, an MVP-type season already after just three weeks. Josh Allen is 24 years old. His counterpart Sunday, the Rams' Jared Goff, 25 years old. Patrick Mahomes, he's only 25. Lamar Jackson of Baltimore, 23. Kyler Murray, who's doing great things out with Arizona, 23. Even Baker Mayfield and Joe Burrow are coming on. They're getting better for sure. I think the NFL is getting used to a new era of quarterback talent, new faces, exciting, fresh approaches to the position. And they're getting good coaching, too. I'm not saying Brady and Breeze and Roethlisberger are done. They're not finished. But they're almost done. (laughs) They're on their way out, I think. And they're being replaced by the young guns. Seattle's Russell Wilson, age 31. I don't know where he belongs in this analysis. But I think it's exciting. It's refreshing. It's a good omen for the next few years of the NFL. And yes, especially here in Buffalo with Josh Allen at the helm. I think it's good for football. A new era of uh, quarterback talent. All right, more football talk ahead with Mark Gaughan of the Buffalo News. Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. We're on the line with Mark Gaughan, who covers the Bills for the Buffalo News. He's been covering the NFL and the Buffalo Bills for, for several decades now. Mark, good to be with you. Thanks for coming on with us today. My pleasure, Mark. Hey, um, we've got to start with Buffalo's amazing win over the Rams. Um, there's a place for that game in Bills history, isn't there? After And we're only a day or two removed from that. But there is definitely a place in Bills history for that game. Yes, I, I I totally agree with that. I mean, there have been a lot of great game-winning drives. I mean, I wouldn't call it the greatest game-winning drive. You know, Kelly's uh, 
one yard uh, keeper into the end zone on the last play of the game in 90 in uh, 89 comes to mind in Miami, but it's up there for craziest. uh, uh, I called it schizophrenic. I mean, there haven't been many game winning drives where they come overcome third and 22 and third and 25, probably never. Um, So it was one of the all timers. And did surrender a 25-point lead made that an incredible comeback win too, right? Yeah. I mean, and definitely there's going to be uh, a lot of uh, scrutinizing of the defense, and rightly so. I will say this. The Rams' offense is really good. You wait. You wait to the end of the season. I guarantee you they're top five, and they're scoring at least 28 points a game. I mean, in, in 2018, when they went to the Super Bowl, I think they scored – 29 or more in 13 to 16 games. I mean, this is a, that's a good offense. Um, Now, you know, the bills missed some tackles, uh, but, uh, and, and, you know, it's, you know, you want to do better than 32 points. No question about it, but this is a beast of an offense. Glad you say that because I do think uh, uh, there'll be a lot of gnashing of teeth about the Buffalo defense this past week and giving up a 25 point lead, but boy, the Rams, they were good on offense. Took them a while to get really warmed up, even though they never punted in the game, by the way. Uh, and they're an interesting offense, the Rams. There are no major superstars on that offense. We're like They're like a finely tuned machine, I thought. It's, I mean, McVay is, you know, viewed as a offensive genius. And he's already, he's 34 years old, and he's already got two protégés who have gotten head coaching jobs. That says a lot. I mean, you just, the misdirection they run, on every play uh, is just so hard to deal with. Um, uh, It's impressive. I mean, I I said before the game, it's taken 28 points to win this game. Um, And uh, it's, uh, it it was really impressive. I mean, the bills, you you just got the sense that they were going to start click. They were going to start scoring and, and uh, really, and again, not to, uh, I mean, the offense was Bill's offense scored 35 points and it was great, but you know, two turnovers helped fuel the comeback, but even without the two turnovers, the bills, they were going to move the Rams. They weren't stopping the Rams in the second half. Once the Rams got it figured out a little bit, they got it rolling. So, you know, there was a missed tackle on the screen pass. Edmonds missed a tackle on the 25 yard touchdown to woods, but, uh, the Rams offense is really, really good. And you wait, you just wait to the end of the season. <laughs> they are going to be, they are going to be at the very top of the rankings. Mark, the, the Bills season is only three games old, but I wonder what generalizations you can make about the 2020 Buffalo Bills after three games, including Sunday's win over the Rams. What do you think of this team? Man, I mean, uh, the addition of Diggs has been everything, uh, everybody thought and hoped it might be. And, um, and, you know, again, I'm just kind of joined the chorus. Uh, Josh Allen uh, has just it been everything Bill's fans dreamed he could be. Now, you know, I think nationally there's going to be a lot of discussion. Oh, my God, he's so improved from last year. Uh, and he is. But I don't think people – he still had this rec- – you know, it's like uh, – you, you, you get a reputation for uh, get, uh, getting up early and you can sleep till noon. You know, this, uh, he, he still had a reputation nationally 
for being this inaccurate passer. He ranked 32nd in completion percentage last year, 59%. But I think it was for the people who watched the game, and I think you would agree with this, he was not (coughs) – he improved a lot last year. It wasn't like he was this nuke Lelouch who's like (laughs) conking fans in the head in row five. You know what I mean? I mean, he he completed 66% of his passes under 20 yards. I mean, under 20 air yards, it was a 66%. He was pretty good last year at completion. Again, not good enough. Yes, he was 32nd. His downfield passing was poor, but uh, he just needed to get a little more air under the ball. He's doing that. His touch passes are great. So, yes, he has taken the step forward. And, and, uh, and I think you just the, – the way he is manipulating the defense. Though you want your your franchise quarterback to win from the pocket late in the down. Oh my God. I mean, he is winning late in the down. The touchdown pass to Diggs against Jalen Ramsey. He waits, uh, you know, guns it with getting hit by Aaron Donald. Um, the pass to Beasley up the sideline, you know, late waits, you know, kind of like gets them thinking he's going underneath, hits it down the sideline. Uh, the pass to Gabe Davis uh, over the middle, not the long three-level one, but the one over the middle, he, he's looking Beasley, gets them thinking he's going low, uh, you know, to kill time, and he takes the high, waits for the high the, on the high-low to break open. Man, oh, man. I mean, he is just – and then the, his, his ability to be accurate outside the pocket on the move. I mean, he is looking like the franchise. Those of us who watched uh, Josh Allen throughout his career, I don't think are shocked by his improvement. In fact, I think people who watched him for three years now, uh, I believe this, his, his improvement has been pretty steady. It's not like he made – and I think you've almost said this – he didn't dramatically improve his game this year or even year one into year two. It's been a pretty steady upward climb. And it's, and by the way, it's not complete yet. I don't think. Yeah. I, like I said, I agree with that. I think nationally people are going to, what, what he's completing 70% of his passes and nationally the story is going to be, Oh, he just got so much better that, that there was this uh, uh, epiphany after his second uh, off season, but no, he got a lot better last year. Uh, and his accuracy was a lot better last year. Underneath, you know, I mean, uh, to his rookie year, no, there was never any separation. He was throwing contested throws every single throw. So Brandon Bean, you got to give him a, a tremendous amount of credit for uh, flipping the script and getting him Beasley uh, and John Brown, guys who get early separation. And for a young quarterback, you know, Mark Kelso used to say this on the broadcast, uh, early separation or separation early in the down allows the young quarterback to see it early and pull the trigger. And uh, that's what Brown and Beasley did for him. And now, you know, now they've got digs and you can't, it's, you know, the defense is a pick your poison situation. You know, another thing, uh, uh, um, you know, th- uh, anticipation throws, Josh is grim advancing, making more anticipation throws. The pass to, to Beasley down the sideline for uh, 29 yards to set up the one, the one touchdown. That was a great anticipation throw. I love what Beasley said. He said, that ball caught itself. 
<laughs> it was so on target that like it just caught the ball caught itself. So it was yeah. great. <laughs> and, Mark, and now the other side of the ball, three games in, and they gave up. Uh, you know, they're outgained by the Rams this past Sunday. But taking all three games into consideration, um, somebody watching the Bills pretty closely yesterday mentioned to me, I think our defense is not as good as they have been for a couple of years. Do you agree? Yeah, I think the jury is out. I mean, I think the pass, the the back seven, I'm not worried about. Um, you know, the Miami game, yeah, the, the mission was more to make Miami burn time than keep them, the, you know what I mean? They were burning them, uh, burning time on that last drive. So um, Fitz played a good game against them. I, mean, yeah, I don't have a problem with the Miami game. I, the, I think the one question I, I have is run, run defense up the middle without star. Hmm. We'll see. I mean, the combination of Jefferson and Phillips at the one technique, Jefferson, more Jefferson Phillips than, than Butler. Butler is kind of, I view him more as the three technique, but Jefferson Phillips at the one technique, it's a little bit of a worry there on stoutness, especially against like New England. It's going to run a lot of power at them. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to have to see it, but that the jury is, that's the one question on the defense that uh, they need to answer. Let me get your thoughts on a couple of, uh, and I think this is an NFL question. I, I try not to be uh, a guy who bashes officiating, but I thought Sunday's game, the win over the Rams, I thought featured a number of really questionable officiating moves. And I know they're up against it. They're completely new teams. They haven't worked together. I know all of that, but I, I maintain, and I've said it for a couple of years, it is the weakest link in, in the NFL officiating, and I thought that was on display against in the Rams game. What did you think? Both sides of the ball. I mean, both teams. It hurt both teams. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have a – I mean, uh, for, this convert, this topic bores me a little. Uh, <laughs> fans love to talk about it. Whatever. Um, you know, I thought the – obviously the pass interference at the end um, on Gabe Davis, I thought it was clearly they had the ball in the 13 – the defensive back had contact with them to the five. That's nine yards downfield. I thought it was an illegal contact. Okay, so it's a five-yard penalty, and now they've got the ball at the eight instead of the, uh, the one or the two. Um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, I, I, thought it was, uh, I thought it was a very close but bad call on the interception to Tyler Croft. I mean, I thought it was dual possession, and it should have been – but. You know, I mean, okay, so that's a terrible call, but it was a terrible pass by Josh. Again, I'm not taking the officials off the hook, but it was a bad play by the Bills. He should have thrown it out of bounds. It was a, a, a mirror like a heave. That was one and not one of Josh's better plays. Um, so that was a bad call. Okay, I mean, yeah, whatever. It's we've been talking about this for a uh, hundred years. Officiating. There's a lot of close plays. Okay. Well, look, you know, I'm what not talking about it. I'm just saying it is the weakest part of a league that's very strong at correcting yes. its problems and, and solving issues, and they have yet to solve the officiating issue. That's all yeah. I'm saying. Okay, I agree. Next topic. <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, the NFL in the COVID era, I want to talk about two aspects. Well, first of all, let's start with this. Three weeks in, it appears, and uh, knock on wood, but it appears the league's got it under control uh, in a non uh, bubble type setup, unlike some other professional sports leagues, uh, very, very few incidences of, of contraction of uh, COVID. And I think uh, at this rate, uh, the league probably will succeed and have a 16 game schedule. What do you think? Yeah, I'm surprised. I, I agree. I think the league deserve and the union 
together uh, uh, deserve credit for coming up with a plan, a testing plan that has worked. The NFL is, you know, obviously has the advantage of having the means to do it and having the ability to make money, uh, be a profitable enterprise with no fans, you know, um, in the stands as opposed to say hockey, uh, which needs fans in the stands. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm surprised. I thought there'd be more, uh, outbreaks and, uh, uh, the, the teams and the players deserve a lot of credit for having the discipline to, uh, being, uh, safe and wearing masks and being clean and on their downtime, on their own personal time, not, uh, engaging in risky behavior. And now tell me about the challenges of, of covering the league in this era. And, uh, well, see if you agree with this. Somebody was talking to me about Tyler Bass, the Bills rookie kicker and, you think his confidence was shattered? He missed those two against the Jets. And I thought, I don't know. I, I've never met Tyler Bass. And, and I think something <laughs> is missing when guys like you and I, and not that we're buddies or friends with players, but you get to know them a little bit. And we have not had that opportunity this year. I think that I think that's missing in, in at least my understanding of what's going on. What, what, what do you find to be the case? Uh, I definitely agree with that. I mean, it's hard. It's a challenge. Uh, I don't, you know, I mean, the, I don't have any issue with the way the NFL is handling it. I mean, I want to be safe. I don't really want to be uh, in a locker room with uh, 65 players uh, in close contact and they don't want to be with me in there because who knows where I've been going. And uh, right. um, so well, something that's the is way missing, it is. Isn't so, it? It def what's that? Something is missing, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I totally agree. And that's a great example. You know, uh, again, not to say that I know these uh, players uh, intimately, but you definitely, uh, when you to take a kicker, uh, Steve Christie, uh, you know, you definitely got a sense from him that Steve, very smart guy, but he had a baseline self-assuredness, you know, like, uh, uh, hey, you, you know, I'm, I am who I am. I'm not, you know, uh, 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 you, you, you got the great sense that he was going to let things roll off his back. Um, uh, so uh, that's a case where you have no sense, really, for Tyler Bass. Um, so it definitely, you know, interviews aren't as good <laughs> on Zoom. You don't get yeah. to ask as many follow-up questions, but we're doing the best we can, and the, and the league is doing a good job of making players available. We had, like, 12 or 13 players after the game uh, that we got to interview um, last night. Uh, so that was good. Um, and we're doing the best we can. And I, and I think we are able to get enough to give the fans uh, pr the players perspective. You do attend the home games, right? In Orchard Park. Yes. Yeah. Because I like to, I don't have to, I could sit and watch the home games from home, but I like seeing the whole field. You get a better feel. I'm sure you would agree with this. You get a better feel for coverages. Is the is it a single safety? Uh, is the middle of the field open or is it closed? Are they blitzing? Are they not blitzing? Uh, you just see more being at the game. And one more COVID-type question. Uh, home games without fans in Buffalo and maybe with limited fans elsewhere. Um, is this, A, is it sustainable? And B, I'm beginning to wonder if the, the NFL might be kind of embarking on a new way to do things. Maybe you don't need a 70,000 seat stadium. Maybe you can get by with a smaller stadium and, and more money for luxury boxes and, 
and focus on the TV because that's where all the money is anyway, or most of the money. No, I don't agree with that at all. <laughs> Tell uh, me why. No, uh, I think uh, it, uh, the game is, and I think that every player would agree with it. The game is so much better with fans in the stands. Uh, it, if you are, I think many fans would agree it's more fun being at the stadium. There is nothing like uh, uh, being uh, one with a mass of people, a mass of 50,000 people, whether it's a sporting event or a concert or a Philharmonic Orchestra or a play. Uh, it is a communal sense of uh, uh, elation. Uh, and uh, that's why uh, spectator events are so popular and it, it is greatly missing that piece. Uh, and it is uh, less because the fans aren't in the stands. Uh, now the players are, you know, obviously I'm not saying the game, uh, but the players are doing a good job at it, but uh, it's better with fans in the stands. That's not going to change. And, uh, you know, certainly in Buffalo, they're not going to knock out stands to have more luxury boxes. They're selling as many as they can possibly sell uh, right now. So no, we can't wait for the fans to get back in the stands. I agree with you. And I thought they were missed particularly. And I mentioned it on the air Sunday after the game, that would have been an incredible scene of people celebrating after the oh comeback God. win against the Rams oh. and tears flowing and hugs and strangers embracing. And that was all missed. I missed that at the end of the game last Sunday. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's why, you know, and you can just pick a memorable concerts you've been at that you'll never forget because you were part of the whole group. Uh, it's, it's better in the stands. I, I, I even, I went to a great uh, Sugar Ray Leonard, boxing match on closed circuit TV at Hearns Leonard at the odd closed circuit TV, one of the greatest fights ever. And I'll never forget it because I was with the crowd and it was bedlam. So <laughs> attend fans are needed. Can't wait till next season. Mark, the last thing I want to touch with you, uh, touch on with you is, uh, uh, among uh, the things you've done in coverage of the NFL and the Bills, you've been the elector, the Buffalo elector for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You did a dozen years of that and, and right. succeeded in, in getting a number of Bills figures into the Hall of Fame. What's that like? Is there a sense of like duty or obligation when you, when you have that role? Like, oh, I've got to get Andre Reid in the Hall of Fame. It's up to me to do it. Yes, it's a great, it's a privilege to uh, be one of the, I mean, when I was doing it, I did it for 12 years from 2001 to 2013. Um, uh, it is uh, a privilege and uh, there is a great sense of obligation. I would just, you know, and, and it's your obligation to state the case for them. Uh, you know, as far as getting them in, uh, I'll just, this is a semantics thing, but I didn't get them in, you know, Andre Reed got himself in the hall of fame <laughs> with his, uh, uh, phenomenal career, but you do have an obligation to present the case in a compelling way. And, uh, and, and, uh, it is very difficult because every year there's 15 modern era candidates and there's five spots and it's a no win situation. And every year, uh, 10 fan bases walk away outraged that their guy didn't get in. Uh, and what are you going to do? I mean, every year there's, there's 15 uh, modern finalists. And I mean, every year, at least 10 and usually 12 or 13 are very deserving to get in and they all can't get in. 
So, uh, um, you know, that's the really tough thing about it. Um, but it was, you know, go ahead. This past year, the league in its 100th anniversary opened the doors and, and had a separate almost classification of Hall of Famers going in, right? Did, did they yes, cheapen it did. admission to the Hall of Fame? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a uh, tough. I mean, the argument was that uh, there was such a backlog and more people should get in. Um, I do think uh, I, I do worry a lot about swinging the door too wide open. I mean, it's very tough to get in. It should be extremely tough to get in the Hall of Fame. It's just it should be. So um, I don't uh, love the fact that, uh, for instance, owners now have a separate pathway to get in. Now, I mean, obviously, it's the NFL, and the owners want it to be a little easier to get some of their, um, uh, you know, like the uh, colleagues in. Ralph Wilson got in the hard way as an owner with no – he had to beat out uh, 10 other – 10 great players – to get in nine great players and another administrator he beat out the year he got in. I think that's the way it should be. Um, I don't have any problem with adding a second uh, seniors candidate because there is a backlog of seniors and there are a good number of guys uh, who never got uh, their hearing before the committee. So I like the fact of adding a second senior candidate. Um, but I'm not in favor of, uh, you know, a, a, a separate, easier pathway for owners, uh, and contributors. Um, but you know, it's, that's what is, that's just my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're looking for. Your opinion. Mark, you have what ancestors from County Mayo or do you still have family? County in- Mayo. They came over in 1882. I've, uh, researched it. I'm uh, very proud of my Irish ancestry. Yes. I know the boat. They, uh, uh, they came over on uh, uh, the SS Nestorian, which was built by the White Star Line, the same company that built the Titanic. Fortunately, the Nestorian had uh, better success in engineering, or I wouldn't be here. And uh, yes, uh, so uh, I know exactly where everybody's from, and I've uh, traced it back. So it's a great uh, you know, source of pride for me. We thank you very much for being with us on the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. Mark, thank you. Okay, great. Thanks so much. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with your host, John Murphy. It's Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. We're on the line with Ian Hamilton, master brewer for Sullivan's Brewing in Kilkenny, Ireland. Ian, I was thinking this is kind of a football show, and as it turns out, you're kind of the quarterback of the Sullivan's Brewing team, aren't you? I guess you could say that. Although if I was doing as well as the, as the Bills in their first two games this season, I'd be doing all right, wouldn't I? <laughs> yes, you would. They're 2-0. and Hey, tell me, um, what, what does it mean to be a master brewer? What does that mean on a, on a day-to-day basis at Sullivan's? Yeah, it's, well, um, first of all, it's, it's a qualification that's awarded by the Institute of Brewing in London. Um, and it's based on a series of exams and kind of professional achievement, you know. So it's the highest kind of qualification you can have in brewing apart from a, a fellowship which is kind of when you're when you get to my age and you haven't killed anybody and people yeah. love your beer yeah. so I'm actually, I'm actually a fellow one of the few fellows of the institute as well which is a nice honor but a master brewer it's, it's essentially 
that you're very good at all of the technical aspects you understand from how barley is grown, how to purify water, how to get the right tastes, which hops to use, all that sort of stuff, plus the engineering and all the health and safety stuff. So some of the kind of more boring stuff that allows you to run a big brewery safely as well. Who does that training, Ian, and how long did it take for you to complete that training? It took me about eight years, I suppose, maybe longer. Um, the Institute themselves set the examinations and they, they award or, or refuse <laughs> the qualification, depending how you do. Uh, funnily enough, I am now one of the lecturers for the Institute of Brewing. So I, I do some online training for people doing the diploma. And this year, my students were from like Venezuela, from uh, Brazil, from the Caribbean, yeah, all online. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. What... Um when you get to that point, I, I just wonder how you got started. What did you, what uh, in your background led you to, to go that direction with your career? I guess uh, certainly from my family, I was the only one interested in science in any way. I was, uh, you know what it was actually, it was the moonshots, you know, in the 1960s. Really? Yeah, I mean, I, I still have scrapbooks. I cut out every article from every newspaper and my father subscribed to Time magazine. So I have Time magazine cuttings from 1968 onwards, from Apollo 8 right through to the last of the Apollo missions. I was just a complete Apollo nerd, yeah, and all of that science then, you know. What sort of education uh, do you need to be a master brewer to, to earn that qualification? Well, it, it certainly helps if you study science because the chemistry uh, in particular, and that doesn't mean we use lots of chemicals in brewing, we don't. But to understand how water and malt and yeast interact, you know, that kind of thing, you need to understand the basic chemistry, which can get a bit messy when you don't have a science background. So, so that helps. But, you know, a lot of your listeners will say, well, what if you don't have a taste bud in your head? <laughs> you know? I mean, there, there are an awful lot of great brewers and a lot of them in Buffalo. I mean, I'm so impressed. I, one of the reasons I've been to Buffalo maybe eight or ten times, not just for Sullivan's work, but... Uh, I just love trying to get into some of the breweries there. And, you know, the, just the, the level of art and craft and brewing in Buffalo is, is amazing. I understand not only are you a, a, have a chemistry background, somebody told me you're very interested in geology as well. Yeah, that kind of came to, I'm in my 60s now. Um, and I came interested in geology about 10 years ago. In fact, uh, I've actually got some fossils that I found in Buffalo. Um, <laughs> yeah, way down, there's an old quarry, uh, Penn Dixie in oh, South yeah. Buffalo. Yep. So I, I spent a couple, of, uh, a couple of hours happily there, uh, gro groveling in the mud and shale, and I found some really nice fossils, which uh, it's a great place. Uh, and, and the same over in, um, in Syracuse, uh, not Syracuse, but in um, Saratoga. Oh, Saratoga, uh, sure. Looking at some great rocks there as well. So, yeah, I, I, uh, somebody said, if you're in the car with Ian Hamilton driving across upstate New York, it can be a long drive. I'm always, I'm always looking at the rocks and comparing them when I want to get out of this stuff. Ian Anderson, you spent a considerable time in Africa uh, brewing and, and not too long ago. You were in Africa, right? Oh, yeah. Myself and my wife, actually. We spent, uh, I'd say you could, it adds up to about 13 years in West Africa. So we went out there. In fact, we, we were in Africa within two weeks of getting married. Um, we were in Cameroon. Yeah, so it's a, it's a great way to start your marriage. You're, 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 you're far away from your in-laws, you know, um, so you just have to make it work. And uh, so we were in West Africa, Cameroon, uh, really interesting, a beautiful country, actually, that very few people know about, unless you're in the oil business, maybe. Um, and then after five years in Cameroon, I went to Ghana, which was very different, in English-speaking and very kind of very, very peaceful, very pleasant place to work for two or three years. 
Then I went back to Ireland and it was to Belfast during the Troubles. So we had some fairly scary times there in Belfast. Again, great people though. And then five years in Nigeria, uh, which is an amazing country, really dynamic. Um, and a brief period then, a few more recently in Kenya. I've heard and read that uh, brewing is very vibrant in Africa, in particular in Nigeria, right? That's for sure. It's, it's one of these surprising ones. Uh, it's kind of one of these interesting Guinness facts that um, after Ireland and Britain, the biggest market for Guinness in the world is Nigeria. It's bigger than the U.S. What, how do you account for that? Uh, you don't think of Africa as, uh, as a brewing headquarters at all. Yeah, well, I guess, like the Irish, they enjoy drinking it. Uh, <laughs> so, so it used to be a big import. And then at the, from the early 1960s with independence, um, the new governments of those countries insisted that companies like Guinness and Heineken establish breweries in the country, you know, rather than all the profits going overseas. Uh, quite a sensible policy. So, you know, basically independence in Africa led to a lot of breweries being built by locals and by foreign companies. And we're talking to you today, and I think you're, you're in, your home is in Kilkenny, right? Is that where That's you are? That's right. I'm talking to you from the Marble City right now. The Black, the black Marble beer is named <laughs> after it. So, sure. Yeah. Did you grow up there? No, I grew up in Cork, uh, which is about an hour, well, two hours away from here uh, on the south coast. Um, so, yeah, I grew up in Cork, and, uh, th but this was my first job. Uh, work, my very first job, a permanent job, was as a trainee brewer with Smithicks in Kilkenny back in 1981. Um, I was known to all and sundry as the baby brewer, of course. <laughs> it, it was a nice, it was kind of an informal place to work. It was nice. Ian Hamilton is our guest. Ian, uh, tell me about Kilkenny, which has kind of a legendary status in Irish brewing, doesn't it? It does indeed, yeah. It's, um, it, it was briefly the capital of Ireland during one of our many unsuccessful attempts to gain independence, uh, or at least civil rights. But, uh, um, it's a beautiful city uh, on the River Nore, um, and it's got a castle at one end and a cathedral at the other, both of them about 800 years old. And uh, um, it's still a very nice kind of cultural city, lots of lovely old buildings and so on. And in terms of brewing, uh, the brewing history goes certainly back to the Normans and to the early, uh, the Franciscans and the Cistercians and those kind of monks. So Abbey-style beers were here for all that time. And even before that, the Celts, you know, the native Irish, um, before the invasions by the Normans, uh, had their own beers as well, but uh, brewed differently. So we're pretty sure that there was brewing there for at least 3,000 years, but we know about 800 years. <laughs> and, and the name Sullivan's has always been a prominent name in Kilkenny Brewing, right? Along with Smittick's. That's for sure, yeah. I mean, Sullivan is actually as much a, a Cork and a Kerry name as well. But there was a, there was a, a Mr. Sullivan uh, as a burger, in other words, a kind of a city father of Kilkenny back in the 1300s. So we do know that Sullivan's have a very long history uh, in Kilkenny. And they founded the brewery, um, 1702 is the date we have. Um, at one point, it was two Sullivan's breweries, one on each side of the road. Um, and Smithicks only had one. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so the Sullivans were one of the big two uh, brewing families in Kilkenny. And Kilkenny, as you say, was kind of legendary because the water is just perfect for brewing ale. Um, it's quite high in calcium and magnesium and so on. Um, because of the limestone, Kilkenny is very rich farmland. So great barley as well, you know. In fact, one of my fellow founders, if you like, of Sullivans or re-founders is one of the Sullivans family uh, through his mother. Um, he's, he's Alan Smithick, and he farms 200 acres of that wonderful land just outside the city. 
Tell me about being, you are one of the founders of Sullivan Brewing Company and, and you're working with what with Smittix and, and Guinness for a while. What got you with Sullivan's? What got you associating with Sullivan's? It's a, yeah, it's interesting. Um, Smittix Brewery celebrated their 300th anniversary in 2010 um, and was closed a few years after that by Diageo. Um, and, uh, while I was still working there, indeed I had a part in that. Um, so uh, when I left, when I was still working with Smithix, um, I became friendly with Paul Smithick and then others of the Smithick family who, who had no role with the company anymore. Smithix was bought by Guinness, now Diageo, back in the 1960s. But the family were still in Kilkenny. So um, when uh, Diageo closed the brewery in Kilkenny, it seemed a very good opportunity for the Smithix family to get back into brewing. And they actually still had... Um, the title, if you like, to Sullivan's Brewing Company, which they had bought in 1918. And so you got affiliated with that family and, and you decided yeah. to, uh, to brew your own beer, call it Sullivan's, right? I guess I came out of retirement to, to <laughs> brew my own beer. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I left Diageo shortly after the closure of Kilkenny Brewery, Smedix Brewery. Um, and I was doing my own thing, studying, uh, as you mentioned, geology as a kind of a hobby as part of my retirement. Um, but my retirement was short-lived. I got involved with uh, Sullivan's as, as the master brewer, and it's been it's been great ever since. That's about five years ago now. There's got to be, I would think, pride of uh, creation there, like the the joy of creating your own recipes and creating a couple of different styles of beer. That has to be part of the attraction for you, I would think, huh? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's funny, you know. I'm over the years, I brewed uh, Budweiser, which is difficult, but a real honor, actually. And I mean that because the quality control around Budweiser is just incredible. Um, Guinness, equally famous and, and loved around the world. Um, and Smithix and all the other well-known beers. Um, but this was the first time anyone asked me, really, to come up with my own beer. And it's, it's, it's been great. And the very first beer we came up with, um, the, the Maltings Irish Ale, it won Best Ale in the World at the International Brewing Awards um, back in 2016-17. And that was with over a thousand beers in, in competition. So it was, it was really nice to, uh, to have my first uh, recipe recognized as a great beer. If I can, Ian, can I take us through the, the Sullivan's products and start with Malting's uh, Irish Ale? What, what are you looking for there? What, how would you characterize that? And what are you trying to create there? Uh, Malting's Irish Ale is, is, is brewed in a very traditional way. It's, uh, it's all malt. So... And the vast majority of the barley that is used to produce it is actually grown in County Kilkenny. Um, so it's, it's what I might call a traditional Irish um, ale, a little bit stronger than what Irish ale has become known as more recently. Um, so it, it's a nice sessionable, but a good full flavored 5%, 5 5 5% alcohol, um, pretty standard alcohol, but definitely not standard taste. Um, I use four different malts carefully chosen to get, each of them gives a different character to the, to the beer so that it becomes quite kind of quite delicious. People always say when they're drinking the pint that, you know, after the first few, they like it at the start. And then at the end or halfway through, they say, wow, I'm getting new flavors. What's that? So it's kind of got that complexity, um, which, which um, you don't get with some of the mass market beers, you know. So it's, it's a craft beer, but it's brewed in a proper industrial kind of high quality way as well. There's the old joke about, um, now, I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it, I'm a brewer, so, but I'm not pretending it's like a, you know, a 1958 Chateau de Chasselet from the flinty southern fields of the Bordeaux. It's much better than that. 
That's a good one. Irish Goldale. What do you? What do you? What's your profile of that? And what are you looking to do with Irish Goldale Sullivan's? Yeah, Irish Gold Ale, it looks more like a kind of a standard lager in the sense that it's a li lighter in color, but it's still a bit darker because I use um, a Vienna malt and, and a, a special caramel malt as well as the Irish pale malt. So it gives it more character, more layers than a standard blonde beer. And its character is also quite, um, how should I put it? It's got a, a very refreshing level of bitterness. I use a special hop in it called First Gold, which is a very traditional, it's kind of a hedgerow variety. It doesn't grow as tall as other hops and it's actually got a really nice um, kind of autumnal kind of harvest flavor to it, you know? So the malting is more, the maltings, the red beer is a bit more on the kind of um, malt driven side. You know, it tastes extra malty, a little bit sweet maybe, although there's no residual, there's no sugar in it as such. It's the, it's the caramel flavor. The first gold is a little bit um, more more bitter. It might remind people more of a, of a lager they might have in Europe, um, or a little bit more of that hop character, but not too much. All the beers we, we brew are for, you know, ordinary people, and I count myself as an ordinary person to enjoy, you know, not way out, not wacky. If I can just explain in one sentence my own brewing philosophy is that when you drink a beer, um, you should taste everything. The beer should be full of flavor, but no one flavor should jump out and attack you. It should be all beautifully balanced, you know? They should all be like players in an orchestra. Yeah, I like that. I want to get back to that in a moment. But tell me, I've heard it said that brewing lager is really the most complex uh, beer style to brew. Is that true? And what do you, what do you make of that? Uh, you could say it is. I mean, I'm an ale brewer, although I've spent a long time brewing lager as well. Um, one reason lager brewing became complicated is because the barley grown in Germany and Bavaria isn't, doesn't, isn't as, as good in some ways for brewing as, as British and Irish barley. I'm not being insulting now, it just, it just has more protein, it has less starch, less, less fermentable. It, it's a different kind of barley and they actually had to, pre, they had to invent a much more complicated brewing process to make beer from it, if you get my drift. But that complicated brewing process adds different flavors. They kind of traditionally used to boil the, the grains in, in with the mash, and that gave a different kind of grassy character. And then the main difference with lager nowadays is that it's stored for a long time. That's what the word lager means, I think, in German, storage. Um, and the yeast is quite a different yeast. Um, it, your, your, your listeners might be interested to know that ales, from from stouts and Guinnesses right through to kind of Sierra Nevadas and so on. Ales are brewed with much more traditional yeast. The lager yeast is a very recent kind of hybrid or mutant that, that appeared a few hundred years ago. Um, and it produces different flavors, those kind of slightly perhaps eggy or sulfury flavors, but they also make the beer, beer um, lighter in flavor and more refreshing, that, that yeast as well. So lager is a, a very different beast to an ale. Um, it's maybe more of a have it with your barbecue kind of beer, um, whereas ale is much more something you might sit down and relish, you know. I want to get you talking about black marble stout, and I've, people here are, this is catching on. Uh, yeah. I, 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 just talk to me about the origin of black marble stout and uh, what you do to, to make it so special. Uh, yeah, I'm glad to. So, um, as I may have mentioned earlier, the Kilkenny is known as the Marble City because of the limestone. It polishes up in, in sculpture and in architecture to look like black marble. It's a, it's a beautiful stone. And of course, the limestone is also important for the flavor. So um, the marble, black marble stout, 
um, is kind of a pun on that. It is very, very dark. It's not black. If you look into it, you will see some lovely dark ruby lights in the, in, in the body of the stout. Um, but it, it's got a lot more of the roasted malt character to it. So that adds notes of coffee and chocolate, believe it or not. Now, we don't add any chocolate, don't get me wrong. But at a certain stage of roasting of barley, or malt, I should say, um, you, get, you get quite chocolatey notes coming through. So it adds all, it's like having a little coffee, a little chocolate, a little bit of the sweetness of malt. And of course, being a stout, it's also quite bitter, uh, which, but you don't notice that because it's balancing the roastiness of the, of the grain. So compared to a better known Irish stout, <laughs> um, the black marble is stronger, I mean, it's, and therefore it's, and it's all malt, so that it has more of that malt flavor, more kind of layers of interest to it. Um, and it just has, it, has, it offers you that bit more, but as I said earlier, with no one flavor jumping out, but a lot more of each flavor that you want. You know? I wonder, as you look at all three products, maltings and gold ale and black marble stout, um, what do you think distinguishes Sutherlands from many other brews out there? And is there kind of an overall distinguishing characteristic you're looking for when it comes to Sullivan's? Well, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to criticize anyone else's beer because I just love most of the, I mean, the beers in Buffalo, as I said, I just, I just love, you know, um, I mean, if I could call out, I mean, you know, I don't want to, if I mentioned one of them, the others might be offended, but, but I have to say, whether it's Big Ditch or Resurgence or Tim Herzog's beers, like they're all, I love them, you know, um, and I love a good Budweiser. Uh, when I'm, you know, when I'm hot and I want a refreshing drink, there's nothing better. So, so they're all good. But what, what's different with Sullivan's is there's this old guy, that's me, <laughs> who spent his life brewing ales in Kilkenny and, and, and in Africa, yes, um, and learned from some of the best. I'm also one of the few brewers who ever actually made malt. Um, so I, I worked in for two years of floor maltings, the traditional way to make malt from barley. So, so I understand the raw ingredients in a different way, maybe. And... Um, What's different about Sullivan's beer, I guess, is that it's brewed in a really traditional Irish ale brewing way from the best of ingredients. Um, and where it might differ from other beers is simply what I said earlier. Yes, we use Irish ingredients wherever we can. Secondly, it's all brewed in Ireland and we brew it especially to ship it to the US as well as to our, our bars here in Ireland. Um, and thirdly, I'm always aiming for that one thing, which is that there's lots of flavor but no, no one flavor overriding the others. I was a bit disappointed, you know, 20, 30 years ago when I tasted some of the first uh, new style pale ales that the hops were really nice, but there was no beer hiding behind the hops. I got nothing else once the hops hit me. Uh, I always thought that a beer should have more than that. And, and I'm not the only one. I mean, yeah. a lot of brewers do that. But Sullivan's has, I think, that a nice balance of real traditional ale flavor, but with that a kind of balance I'm particularly fond of. And maybe maybe our secret weapon is the yeast that I selected. Um, the yeast um, has a long history of producing cask-style ales, the old traditional beer engine type. You, you know in those old movies when people pull the pint of beer and it comes out, you have to pull it a few times because they're actually pumping the beer from a cask. Yeah. Um, so the, the yeast I selected has a long history of producing that kind of traditional ale. So with a few brewer's tricks up my sleeve, I was able to talk nicely to it and get it to produce really good beer in a modern way. Ian, as, uh, as a master brewer and as a founder, uh, what do you see as the, the goals for Sullivan's Brewing Company? Oh, that's, uh, that's interesting. Uh, well, I guess 
the overriding goal for us is to bring brewing in a big way back to Kilkenny, back to the home of, of, of the best ales in, in, in Europe, I would say. So um, with the closure of the brewery by, by Diageo, um, for good commercial reasons and everything, I'm not being critical of, of another company. I, I was part of it at the time. Um, but to end an 800-year history in Ireland's medieval capital, that's a horrible thing to, to, to kind of... It, it's a gap. It's, it's, it's a hole that we're trying to fill. And as our brand and our beers get more popular, um, we, will, we will shortly get to the point where we will have to put in a much bigger brewery here in Kilkenny and, 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 and start another 300 years at least of history. That's really my dream, is long after I'm gone and all of my colleagues... Um, we may be remembered now and then as the people who brought Sullivan's back after its first 300 years uh, and uh, started a whole new history in, in the world, but for Irish beer. And, and we'll never forget that it was the welcoming people of upstate New York and uh, later other states that, that, that gave us our chance. That's a great sentiment. And as you said, you've been here several times. and There seems to be a natural affinity between upstate New York, Buffalo, and the others in Kilkenny, right? You, you, you oh, yeah, in, in many ways. I think we get on really well. For many times I've seen, even in, even, <laughs> it, it, we even get a lot of tourists from, from kind of the Buffalo area coming around. It's really nice. I, I might have mentioned earlier, I, I was first in Buffalo in 1980. Uh, I was working as a, as a young man, and I, I bought a motorcycle, and I headed off around the Great Lakes. But I, I, I'll never forget kind of the night I stopped shy of the... Uh, of the Niagara Falls, you know, 20, 30 miles shy, and I, I looked for somewhere to put up my tent, and it was a young buffalo guy who said, I oh, put up your tent in my mother's yard, and he hopped on the back of the motorcycle, and we, we went along, and his mom brought me in, I put up my tent, and when I woke up the next morning, she, she, was, she was saying, hey, Irish, Irish, how do you like your eggs? <laughs> So I said, well, this is a nice town. I must remember this town. Yeah, she said, it's Buffalo, city of great neighbors. <laughs> Ian, thanks for this. It's great catching up with you. I hope we can do it again sometime. Thank you. That would be great. I really enjoyed it. I hope your listeners found some of it of interest anyway. Extremely <laughs> interesting. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week's podcast, the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. I want to thank our Sullivan's brewmaster, Ian Hamilton, who joined us all the way from Kilkenny, Ireland, the home of Sullivan's talking about his craft, very intelligent guy, very personable guy. I've had a chance to meet him a couple of times. He's great. He'll be back up in these parts someday soon. If you want to learn more about Sullivan's, you should check out the website, sullivansbrewingcompany.com. I want to thank my friend Mark Gaughan for joining us. Mark Gaughan from the Buffalo News, always thoughtful, always insightful, great perspective on what's going on around the Buffalo Bills and in the NFL. I love talking to Mark Gaughan. I learn when I talk to Mark Gaughan. This week on Thursday night, we're going to be in central New York. Hope to see you there. We're going to be with Sullivan's Ambassador Matt Tomano in the Utica, Syracuse area. Come on out and see us Thursday night. This Thursday, October 1st, we'll be at Killebrew Saloon in New Hartford, New York, 10 Clinton Road in New Hartford, just outside Utica. We will watch the Thursday night football game, Jets and the Broncos. We'll talk some Bills football, some NFL, and we'll pour some Sullivan's Ale, Maltine's Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Irish Gold Ale, Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. We'll talk about that as well. Killebrew Saloon, New Hartford, New York, Thursday night, October 1st at 10 Clinton Road in New Hartford. Hope to see you there. I want to thank our producer, Pat Feldball. We'll see you next week right here on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. You've been listening to John Murphy and the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's all about the bills and the beer.